Well, today is our uh, third Sunday in our sermon series called The End, Understanding the Times and the Seasons. Remember the first Sunday we dealt with the characteristics of the last days, and the main characteristic of the last day is men will be lovers of their own selves. And how many would agree with the preacher this morning? How many would agree that that is the characteristic of the last day? That people are lovers of themselves, they're self-centered, it's all about themselves. Last Sunday we dealt with the rapture of the church. The word rapture is a Latin word which means harpezo, it's a Greek word which means harpezo, which means to be caught up or to be snatched up. That word is used in the New Testament to describe the event that's getting ready to happen to Christians around the world. Now this morning we're going to deal with two things. We're going to deal with the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to deal with the tribulation period. The next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church, the catching away of all true believers around the world. The Bible is very clear that the end is very nigh to us. The Bible says in Matthew 24 and verse 32, Jesus said it like this, and I quote, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you will know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Matthew 24, 32 and 33. Now once you look at the scripture, Jesus said, when you see the fig tree, when it begins to bloom again, that's actually what he's saying, when you begin to see its branches become tender, when it puts forth leaves, Jesus said, you will know that the end is near even at the door. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what is Jesus trying to say here? Jesus said when the fig tree blooms, the end is near. Now, my question is, is what in the world is the fig tree? The fig tree in the Bible represents the nation of Israel. Somebody shout Israel. Somebody shout it out again, Israel. What does the fig tree represent? And the Bible says in Hosea 9 and 10 and Joel 1 and 7, it gives a, a symbolic understanding that Israel represents a fig tree. And Jesus said, when you see this fig tree begins to bloom, you will know the end is at near. The end is very near. In other words, when Israel blooms again, when it comes alive again, you will know that the time is near. Now let me just say this. Israel, after the destruction of their temple in 70 AD, God's Jewish people, they're called the Hebrews, they're called the Jews, they're also called the Israelites. Jesus was born a Jew, Jesus was born in the Middle East, that's God's people. He spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, from your loins is going to come my people and they're going to worship me as God. So the Jewish people are called Jews, Hebrews, Israelites. All those terms mean the same thing. Those people had their own land in the Middle East, but after 70 AD, they were scattered throughout the world. After the destruction of their temple, they were scattered throughout the world. Now, how do I know that? Well, the scripture gives us a clue in James chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to this wording here. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes, who are the twelve tribes? Israel. To the twelve tribes who are scattered abroad. 
they are scattered abroad. The Jewish people lost their land and they were scattered throughout the world. They lost it and they were scattered throughout the world. James said to the 12 tribes who were scattered abroad throughout the whole world. And, 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 and when they were scattered abroad, they went to different places throughout the world. But let me remind you, God always remembers his promises. I want, I, I want to just remind you, listen to this scripture. It's an interesting scripture in the book of Isaiah. But before she was in labor, listen to this, she gave birth before her pain came. She delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of her birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause delivery, shall shut up the womb, says your God. Isaiah 66. So the prophet is saying, he's saying, I've never even heard of such a thing that a nation could be born in one day. Or a nation could be born all at once. You see, the Bible says in Genesis 13, verse number 14, speaking of Abraham, God said to Abraham, look up now, look, look at your, lift your eyes up and look to the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. Now let me say this, ladies and gentlemen. God spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, all of the people that come from you and Sarah all of your descendants, I'm going to give them this piece of land and it's going to be theirs and this land is going to be theirs forever. The prophet Isaiah said, have you even heard of such a thing where God could, could make a nation be born in one day? Isaiah said, if God is going to deliver the baby, he's not going to forget about the baby. Somebody say hallelujah. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, God kept his word. Now, I'm trying to act reserved this morning, but y'all know I'm Pentecostal because I'm reminded in history, y'all know what happened. On May the 14th, 1948, in one decree from the United Nations, in one day, Israel blossomed again. In one day, Israel became a nation. In one day, Israel begin to bloom again upon the fig tree. Is there anybody that can wave your hand and say, I know God always keeps his word. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it happened so fast that the Palestinians didn't even know what happened to them. I mean, it happened so fast that Israel became a nation all the other countries had to scratch their head and say, where in the world did that come from? For 2,000 years, can I just preach a little bit? For 2,000 years, from the time of 70 AD, for 2,000 years, Israel, the Jews, God's Hebrew people were scattered throughout the world and they did not have their own homeland. They didn't have their own land. For 2,000 years, they were scattered throughout the world. And one day on May 14, 1948, the United Nations said, we're going to give Israel back their land. And ever since 1948, the Jews have been traveling back to their homeland because Jesus said, when you see the fig tree bloom, you will know the time is at hand.
Ladies and gentlemen, we are living at the last day. Jesus said, when you see, he said, now learn this from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and it puts forth leaves, you will know that summer is near. What is summer? Summer is the time of the harvesting. It is the end of the age where God will harvest his people from the earth. He said, when you see the fig tree begin to bloom, when the fig tree begins to put forth its leaves, you'll know that summer, you'll know that the harvest is almost here. When you see these things, you'll know it's near, even at the door. Is there anybody that can help this preacher this morning, that can wave your right hand and say, God, I thank you, you always remember your word. Always remembers his word. So, that is the super sign of the last days. Nobody can argue with that. That is a super sign of the last days. Now, we know we're living in the last days. We know that any time the rapture will happen, for the Lord himself will should descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will be raised up, and they will meet him in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You see, that is getting ready to happen at any moment, at any time. There is nothing holding back God's prophetic calendar. There is nothing holding back the sound of the trumpet. We are living in the last days. The last days started with Jesus, and we've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. There is nothing that is, there is nothing that needs to happen to restrain the rapture of the church, the catching away of the church. Now, after we are caught up, don't lose me, please. After we're caught up, the next thing that happens on God's prophetic calendar, after the rapture, the next thing that happens for you and I, for Christians, is called the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. You rem I, let me remind you of the scripture in 2 Corinthians 5 and 10. I quote what the Apostle Paul says. It's behind me. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in his body according to what he's done, whether it's good or bad. The, Paul, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 14 and verse 10, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show content for your brother? For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, would you say this with me this morning real loud? The judgment seat of Christ. So right after the rapture, you and I, Christians, are going to go to a judgment. And it's called the judgment seat of Christ. Immediately after the rapture, every Christian will stand before Christ to be judged by him. But let me remind you, this judgment is not for salvation. For you've already been saved and you've already been delivered by the cross. This judgment has nothing to do with your sin, but this judgment has everything to do with your works, your motives, and your service to God. This judgment is for believers only. This judgment is not a judgment of sin, like I said. This judgment is a reward for believers for their service, works, and motives. In other words, after the rapture, you and I are caught up to meet him in the air, and then you will be judged. You will be not judged for your sin, but you will be judged for the works that you have done for Christ. Now let me remind you, the Bible says in John 5 and 24, and I quote, Most assuredly I say to you, 
He who hears my word and believes in me, who sent me, has already everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You see, ladies and gentlemen, after the rapture of the church, you are not judged for your sin, for your sin is already judged. It's very popular for us to preach this, that God is going to put all of your sins on a, on a white screen, and everybody's going to know what you did. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not scripture. God is not going to put all your sins on a white screen, and that is not going to happen. If you confessed your sin and repented of it, the cross of Christ was enough. Boy, that's some good preaching. I said, the cross of Christ is enough. So if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, after the rapture, you will be judged, but not with your sin, but you'll be judged with what you did, your works. I will be judged in how well I pastored you. So that's why, you know, if I'm preaching the truth and you get offended for it, you're not going to be judged. I'm going to be judged. Come on, can I hear an amen? I'm going to stand before God and be judged with how well I worked and what the service I did. So your sin is not judged because your sin is nailed at the cross. Your guilt is judged at the cross. Your sin is nailed at the cross. Your guilt, your shame, your iniquities, your transgression, your past, your present, future sins, alcoholism, pornography, depression, oppression, you name it, it's all nailed at the cross the moment you believe and trust in Christ alone. The Apostle Paul said it like this, and I quote, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made us alive together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Woo! Somebody shout hallelujah. He nailed it to the cross. So after the rapture, you are not judged for your sin. Your sin was already nailed to the cross. There is no white screen where he embarrasses you with all your sin. I, know, I think we should just take a praise break because y'all probably did some things in the back seat of a car. You don't want nobody else to know. So can we just go ahead and give God praise right now? Woo! Hey! 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 Thank you that I've been delivered! Hallelujah! So you're judged not because of your sin, but you're judged because of your works and your service for Him. This judgment is called the Bema Seat. B-E-M-A. It's another word. Alright? Another word, just like, you know, my name is Josh, or Joshua, or Joshy. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> the judgment seat after the rapture is also called the what? What is it called? Shout it out. What is it called? And now why, 
Why did he use, it's a Greek word called bima. Why did he use this word? The word seat means bima. Why did Paul use this word? Well, a bima was a high platform with a seat on it. And usually in the Roman times, in the Colosseums, the emperor would sit on the seat, a high seat. And if you won in the Olympic Games, guess what? You walked up the steps to the emperor and he put a crown on your head. That's, it's just a high platform with a seat on it. Paul says, after the rapture, Jesus, who is the ultimate emperor, will sit on a platform on a seat. And after you have run the race of life, you'll be able to walk up the steps and he's going to put a crown on your head. And this crown will never fade away. Hallelujah. He said, if you can make it through life, if you can run the race well, he said, in the Olympics, the emperor would give a crown made of figs and leaves. But if you can make it, Jesus will sit on that seat and he will crown you with not a crown made of figs and leaves, but he'll give you a crown which fadeth not away. Is there anybody that's going to meet me on the other side? Is there anybody that's going to make it to the other side? Don't, don't allow anything to hinder you. Did you hear me? Don't allow anything to hinder you. Run the race well. You see, Paul said it like this, finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge will give me on that day. Don't lose, don't lose the vocabulary here. And not to me only, but also to those who love his appearing. Look at the scripture again. Finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. What day? The day you die is the day you'll be judged. The day that you're raptured is the day you're judged. The day that you leave this earth is the day you're judged and you'll receive your reward. What day? The day that you see Him. So this judgment happens immediately after the rapture. Very quickly. We don't have time to explore this, but just very quickly in 1 Corinthians. It's behind me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. And I want you to see what the Apostle Paul says here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 10. Now look at the wording here. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds upon it. But let each one take heed to how he builds on it. For no other foundation can be laid, that which is already laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on this foundation, which is gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or stubble, each one's works will become clear, for that day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's works of what sort it is. And if anyone's work, which he has built on, endures, he will receive a reward. Somebody say reward. And if anyone's work is burned, 
It will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so much as through the fire. You see what, you see what Paul said? He said the foundation of your life is who? Jesus. He is the foundation of your life. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. You should be building on Jesus. But how many knows that if you're building a house, you need more than a foundation? Jesus is your foundation, but you this morning, ladies and gentlemen, are putting the walls up in your house. You're the one that's laying the carpet. You're the one that's putting the lights in it. Jesus is not doing that. Jesus is already the foundation. And through your whole life, you are building a house. And the question is, are you building your house on wood, hay, or stubble? Or are you building your house on gold and silver and precious stone? Jesus said, or Paul said, on that day, if you have built upon Jesus, you're already saved. You're in heaven because Jesus is your foundation. But if you've built your house upon wood, hay, or stubble, the fire will burn it down. But if you built your house on gold, silver, and precious stone, it will endure and Jesus will give you a reward. Now, how do you build my life, which is my house? How do I build my house on the foundation? How do I build it on gold? and silver and precious stone. It all is determined by your motives. In other words, what are you building your life upon? And you build your life upon giving glory to God. If you're clean in the nursery, you do it for the glory of God. You don't do it to be seen of men. If you're leading worship, if you're preaching, if whatever you may do in the church, you do it for the glory of God and therefore you're building your house upon something that will last, and on that day you will receive a reward. You say, well, I'm only preaching to two people in my class. Are you doing it for the glory of God, or are you doing it for the praise and recognition of people? Now, it, it's interesting to me when you read the Bible, you just discover bunch, bunches of things. I mean, it's really amazing. I mean, I'm amazed. It's just if you read the Bible... It really amazes me that if people would just read the Bible. Can somebody just help this preacher out this morning? Now, I know I'm the preacher. I'm, I, I read the Bible, but I want to read it to you right now. Matthew 6. Now, I just want you to see this. Now, we're just having a Bible study. Is that right, Pastor Dave? We're just having a Bible study. Somebody say, shout out Bible study. Matthew chapter 6. Look at verse number 5. Matthew 6, 5. Now look, look at the wording here. And when you pray, be not like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corner streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their... So, so what was their reward? They did it to be seen of who? And if you do things to be seen of men, you already got your reward. Am I right? So you're not going to receive a reward where? You already got your reward because people noticed you. When I was in Bible college years ago, I, I never forgot how, you know, my friends would put big signs on their doors in the presence of Jehovah, please do not disturb, and they'd pray louder than anybody on the floor. Sometimes I come home, I worked at McDonald's. Did you all know that? I worked at McDonald's, come home, and, and I walked up steps to the dorm, and they'd be laid out on the floor praying louder than anybody. You know, I had a problem with that. 
because prayer is intimacy. And it shouldn't be voiced to the world. When a husband and wife make love, it's between them. It's intimacy. And when you pray, it's intimacy with the Father. And it's not to be publicized to the whole world. It's not. Now, look, look at verse number 6. But when you pray, you go into your room. And when you have shut the door, why? Because you do it for the glory of who? Pray to the Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. How, reward you where? At the Bema seat? Because you prayed in secret to give glory to God and not to be seen by men. How am I going to get rewarded on that day if you do your works, not for the glory of people, but you do your works for the glory of God? Did you see that? Do you not know that those who run in the race all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it to obtain an imperishable crown. Ladies and gentlemen, let's keep running. Let's keep building our house for the glory of God. Let's keep working for God and everything we do, let's have the right motive so that on that day you'll be rewarded with not a perishable crown, but an imperishable crown which fadeth not away. Would you check your heart this morning? Are you doing things for the glory of God? Are you doing things for selfish ambition and wrong motives? See, ladies and gentlemen, we are living in the last days. The next thing that happens on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture, the catching away of all believers around the world. After the rapture, Christians, you and I, will be judged at the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, and you'll be rewarded for how well you built your house, what motives you had. You'll be rewarded for your service and your motives and your works. Now, on earth, after the rapture, you're being judged. You're with the Lord. But on earth, after the rapture, there is a tribulation period. A tribulation period. Let me explain that. The tribulation period is seven years of God dealing with the Jewish people. And not only the Jewish people, but it's God finalizing the judgment upon the unbelieving world. That's what the tribulation period is. In describing the period of the great tribulation, Jesus said it like this, Matthew 24, 21, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until now, nor shall it ever be. You see, Jesus said it's going to be a horrible time. You see, the tribulation period is also called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. So it's the time of Israel's trouble. It's Daniel's 70th week. Now the word week in the Old Testament, the word week means seven. Everybody say seven. So Daniel's 70th week or seventh week, the day of the Lord's vengeance or the day of wrath. 
It is a period of seven years of God dealing with the Jewish people and to finalize the judgment upon the unbelieving world. I want you to listen to me. Jesus, Jesus here, describing the events of the tribulation period. And notice how bad the tribulation period will be. Revelation 6.15 And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in caves in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, quote, fall on us and hide your face from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? That's how bad the tribulation period will be. The Bible says that these people will cry, that rocks will fall on them. They will hide in the caves, but they'll find no relief for their sorrow. Now, can I explain something to you, ladies and gentlemen? I'm an old-fashioned preacher, and I firmly believe there is a difference between wrath and there's a difference between suffering. Christians are suffering now in the Middle East. Christians suffer continually throughout the world. Suffering is a part of life, but the wrath of God is a different story. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus on the cross, and he took your sin. So ladies and gentlemen, I'm a firm believer that you and I are not going to go through the tribulation period because the tribulation period deals with the wrath of God and I believe the wrath of God was already poured out on the cross and if you receive forgiveness, you don't have to experience the wrath of God. Can I hear an amen in the building? So I believe that you and I will be raptured before the tribulation period. I'm going to say that again. I believe the church is going to be taken from the world before the, the tribulation. Now, now, you say, preacher, where is that found in the Bible? Well, I'm glad you're here. Can I read it to you? And I quote, And they wait for the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who deliver us from the wrath of Woo. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. And I quote, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have that no one takes your crown. Woo! I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, the grace of God is going to rapture the church before the great tribulation period. You're not going to experience the wrath of God. That is the wrath of God in the tribulation period. We're delivered from the wrath of God. We suffer, but the wrath of God is a different thing. Facts about the tribulation period. Number one, number one, it will affect the whole world. Revelation 3, 7. Number two, it will last seven years. Daniel 9, 27. 
The tribulation does not necessarily begin the day the church is taken to meet the Lord in the air. Now, don't lose me. It's going to happen after the rapture. But it may, let's suppose the rapture happened tomorrow. That does not mean the tribulation starts on Tuesday. Does that make sense? Because there could be some time period. It may be a couple years before the tribulation starts. Okay? Number four, the tribulation actually begins. When does the tribulation period begin? It begins with the signing of a covenant between the Antichrist and Israel. So there will become a man on the scene. After the rapture, there's going to be turmoil through the world. People will be missing. The world will not be in peace. And the Antichrist is going to come to Israel to offer peace to Israel. What is, what is the Middle East crying for right now, church? Peace. And the Antichrist is going to come and offer a peace treaty, and they're going to sign a seven-year peace treaty. How many years? How many years? It's seven years of a peace treaty. The Antichrist will come to power, number five, through a peace plan. Very quickly. You don't have to turn there. I want you to see, this is, this is some awesome stuff about the, the, the details in Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And I want you to pay attention here. Daniel 9, 27. Now look here. Daniel and Revelation are sister books. Now look here of the Antichrist. Daniel 9 and 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for how many? One. And what does the word week stand for? Seven. Look at, look at it. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven years, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and the offering. So the Antichrist is going to do something in the middle of the tribulation. And on the wing of the abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Even when the consummation which is determined is poured out upon the desolate. So there, the tribulation period lasts for how long? Seven years. He makes a covenant for how long? The Antichrist makes a covenant for how long, church? Now look at Daniel chapter 8, verse 23. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 23. Look at this. Daniel chapter 8, verse 23. This speaks of the Antichrist. Look at verse 23, Daniel 8, 23, and in the latter time of his kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. You see that? Having fierce features, who understands the schemes, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, he shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and he shall destroy the holy people. You see that? Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper. So is the Antichrist going to bring some prosperity? Yes, he's going to bring some peace. Look at it. He shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. You see that? He shall exalt himself in heart, and he shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. Who is that? Christ. He shall rise against the prince of peace. But he shall be broken without human means. 
That means Christ will destroy him. So do you see this description of the Antichrist coming to peace, coming to power, trying to destroy the whole world? Daniel chapter 11, verse 21. I'm almost done, church. Daniel chapter 11, verse 21. Daniel chapter 11 and verse number 21. Daniel 11, 21, look at this. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 21, and in his place shall arise a vow person to whom there shall give not, they shall not give honor of royalty, but he shall come in peacefully. He shall come in peacefully and shall seize the kingdom by his flatteries. Some translations say he intrigues them, whatever translation you have, but the word means flatteries. Now let me read it one more time, verse 21. And he sh- and his place shall arise in a vow person, to whom there shall not give honor of royalty, but he shall come in peacefully. So the Antichrist comes in peacefully, and he sees the kingdom by the words of his mouth, by flatteries. So the Antichrist comes to rule through a peace plan, and he comes to rule by the flatteries of his mouth. Daniel chapter 11, verse 23. Daniel 11 and verse 23. And after the covenant or league is made with him, the one week after it's made, he shall act deceitfully. So after he makes the covenant, he acts deceitfully, for he shall come up and become stronger with the small number of people. Who is the small number of people? It is God's holy people. After the covenant is made, he then deceives the people. Verse 24, look at verse 24. Daniel eleven twenty-four. Daniel eleven twenty-four. He shall enter peacefully. You see that? He shall enter peacefully even into the richest places of the providence. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. So he's going to do things that nobody else has ever done. That's why Jesus said it will be the most horrible time ever known to human race. So what are you saying, Pastor? I am saying the Antichrist makes a peace covenant with Israel for seven years. And this covenant will bring temporary peace to the Middle East. And the whole world will honor it as a peace movement. What are they crying for in the Middle East? They are crying for peace, peace, peace. Number six, in the middle of the seven years... When the seven-year covenant is made in the middle of the seven years, the covenant or treaty is broken, and the Antichrist goes into Jerusalem, into the temple, and he demands that the Jewish people, and not only the Jewish people, but he demands that the world worships him as God. You see that, ladies and gentlemen? That's what begins to happen. The Antichrist fools people. He comes in offering peace, but in the middle of the seven years, he demands the world to worship him, and thus, everyone has to take the mark of the beast, 666, in order to worship the beast, to buy, sell, or trade, because your allegiance is to the Antichrist. Is that all right, church? Say amen. Is that all right? Somebody say amen. Are you learning this morning? Say praise the Lord. Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians. Andrew, if you can put that behind me. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. 
In verse number 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will come unless there's a falling away first, and the man of sin, the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself to be God. What does the Antichrist do? He breaks the covenant in the seven years, he breaks the covenant in the seven years and demands that people worship him as God in the temple. Don't be mistaken, he says. Don't be soon shaken. I'm almost done. Number seven. Jesus referred to the last three and a half years as the time of great tribulation, such as the world has never known. Number eight. In the time of tribulation, the time of tribulation will end when Jesus Christ returns to the earth in power and great glory. You see, the rapture and the second coming are two separate events. The rapture, the believers are caught away before the tribulation period. But ladies and gentlemen, the second coming is when Jesus comes at the end of the tribulation period and he fights at the battle of Armageddon and you and I come with him at the second coming. Somebody say amen. Number nine, he defeats, after Jesus comes back in glory, he defeats the Antichrist at the battle of Armageddon and he establishes his kingdom on earth for a thousand years and you and I will reign with him as priests and kings. Listen to me, you are going to be raptured at any moment, at any time, but after the end of the tribulation period, you will come back with him to fight in the battle of Armageddon. The scripture records in Revelation 19, verse 14, and I quote, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Somebody say, praise the Lord. So we're going to come back at the battle of Armageddon. I don't know about you, but I've read the end of the book, and we already won the battle, and victory is already ours. Revelation 6, I close with this scripture, Revelation 6. It's behind me. Revelation 6, verse 1. This starts, Revelation 6 is the beginning of the tribulation period. Now look at verse 1. Revelation 6, verse 1. Revelation 6, verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. Look at verse 2. Now what happens in verse 2? And I looked, and behold, there was a white horse, and he who set up, on, set up on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering to conquer. Ladies and gentlemen, let me stop here. There is a man on a horse, and the horse is a white horse. White is the symbol of peace. Some people think that this is Jesus, but this is not Jesus. This is the Antichrist coming in the tribulation period, and he's coming on a white horse because white represents peace, and the Antichrist is coming to conquer in peace. Now, how do I know that? Look at verse number 2. Verse number 2, Revelation 6, 2, And I looked up, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it had a bow. He did not have arrows because the Antichrist is coming with peace. He's coming with just a bow, not to fight. He's coming with peace. And look, and he had a crown was given to him. Now, I'm, I'm about to shout here. Do you know what the Greek word for crown here is? It is not diadem. 
The diadem crown is found in Revelation 19.12. Diadem. Somebody say diadem. Revelation 19.12. Look at it. Revelation 19.12. Revelation 19.12. Look at this. And his eyes were like the flame of fire, and on his head was many crowns. And his name was written that no one except but him. The word crown in verse number 12 is the Greek word diadem because Jesus is wearing a kingly crown because Jesus is the king of kings and Jesus is the Lord of lords. Jesus wears the kingly crown. In Revelation 6-2, the man that's on the white horse does not wear the diadem crown. He's only wearing a victor's crown, not a kingly crown. Thus, the person who's riding on the white horse is not Jesus. It is the Antichrist because Jesus wears the crown which is he's the king of kings and the lord of lords <laughs> hallelujah ladies and gentlemen that concludes for now our study of the end times amen